15, please. No, uh, Scott didn't read the wrong passage. It's okay. We will come back there. Mark chapter 15. I want to read one verse, Mark chapter 15 and verse 40. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. Uh, for this day, we do thank you that we can come again around your word, and we pray that, Lord, as we uh, take time to uh, sit and listen to your word, we pray that, Lord, today you would minister to us. Lord, we thank you that you gave us your word. We thank you that we have in our possession the very inspired truth we pray that, Lord, as we look at today, that we might glean from it that which you'd have for us. Lord, give me wisdom, I pray, that I might have uh, guidance as I speak this morning, that, Lord, we might honor you through all that is said today. Lord, we pray that you'd minister to us through your word and guide us as we study your word together. And just bring glory to your name, we pray, in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. God has always been and is still interested in one thing when it comes to his children, and that is our devotion to him. You and I will serve him faithfully. You know, it's not how famous we are. It's not how great a personality we have. It's, uh, nor is it the great position that you and I might have that counts to God. There's only one thing that God is really looking for in our lives, and that's that you and I love him, and because we love him, we're devoted to him. This is graphically illustrated for us in the lives of two disciples that we want to look at in this session today, in this message today. They were obscure men, but Christ chose them to be two of his twelve apostles. We know much about Peter and we know much about John. We even know a number of facts about Thomas and Matthew and Nathaniel and James, Zebedee and Judas Iscariot. We even know some things about Simon Zelotes. But of these two men, we know hardly anything. So let's look at what we do know about them and see what we can learn about our devotion to God. The first one we want to look at is here in Matthew, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 40, and it's James the Less. James the Less, notice the end of verse 40 there, it says, Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph. Mary, mother of James the Less, and Joseph. That is that his name, that James was known as the Less. His name here in Mark 15, 40 is interesting because it's the only time he's called that. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, and Mark chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, which uh, 
Scott read for us this morning. He's called James, the son of Alphaeus. Go back to Mark chapter 3 and verse 18, if you would, please. Mark chapter 3 and verse 18. This is Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. So he's called James the Less in Mark 15.40. He's called James the son of Alphaeus in Matthew and in Mark 3. His name is an anglicized version of the Hebrew name Jacob. He may be named Jacob after Isaac's son in the Old Testament. That's what they tend to do in Bible times. And it seems like they named him Jacob after uh, an Old Testament character. And James was known as the Less here in Mark 15:40. Now, why was he called the less? Well, it's probably a nickname. You know, in the first century, uh, men did not have last names. It wasn't, you know, uh, James Smith or James Brown. It was James, and they didn't have last names. They dropped, uh, they adopted phrases to distinguish one person from another person who had the same name. They either used the phrase, the son of, like they did of James and John and the reading that Scott gave to us this morning, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Or they used a nickname because uh, not only were James and John known as the sons of Zebedee, they were known as the sons of thunder. Or in this case, James the Less. And James's surname in Greek is Mekros, which generally means small. However, when it comes to using this name Mekros with a person, it can mean short in uh, height, younger in age, low in rank, or low in influence. Uh, there is no indication which one it actually refers to. We don't know if it means that James was a short man or whether it means that James was younger than some symbolism of his or that he was low in rank. But it is generally thought that James's name, the less, was a nickname. And it's generally thought amongst the commentators that it was because he was either younger or shorter than the other apostle named James, James Zebedee. Okay? So you have two Jameses in the twelve. You have James Zebedee and you have James, and they had to give him some nickname, so they call him James the less. Now some translators the younger, so it could be James the younger. But whatever, he had a nickname. And the nickname was given to him so we might be able to distinguish between James Zebedee and James the Less. Really, the only other thing we know about him is his family. Go with me to Matthew chapter 10, please. Matthew chapter 10. So his name and now his family. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2 through 4. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, which, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Livius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These, are, uh, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into a way of the Gentiles and into the city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. Here he's called in verse 3, James the son of Alphaeus. So this is his family name. His nickname is the Less. His family name is the son of 
Alpheus. And from Mark 15.40, where we read about Mary being his mother, we know also that he had a brother by the name of Joseph, according to Mark 15.40. If we compare Mark 15.40 with another passage where he is mentioned, John chapter 19, so go there please. Sorry about all the flipping around, but I'm trying to point a, paint a picture of who his family was. His mother's name was Mary, his brother's name was Joseph, and in John chapter 19 and verse 25, we have a clue to his father. Okay, John 19 and verse 25. Now they stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So we know from Mark 15:40 that Mary, the mother of James the Less, is there. We know from John chapter 19 and verse 25 that Mary is the wife of Cleophas. And we know that James is the son of Alphaeus. So we know that Cleophas is another name for Alphaeus, which means that James the Less and James the son of Alphaeus are one and the same. And so we know that James the Less is the son of Alphaeus, that's his father, Alphaeus is his father, Mary is his mother, and Joseph is his brother. Okay? Oh, I'm confused you. Okay? Evidently, the entire family serves the Lord. It's interesting to find out about these ones, particularly his mother. His mother's at the cross when Christ is crucified. We read that James's mother followed Christ during his ministry and was, as I said, present at the crucifixion. So James the Less, James the son of Alphaeus, comes from a very dedicated family to the Lord. It seems like he has a rich heritage in his family. It seems like his mom and dad were godly people. And that's what leads him to want to seek to follow the Lord. And it's what the Lord sees him as a reason for choosing him to be an apostle. Now except for these facts... His name, James, the son of Alphaeus, his father, Alphaeus, his mother, Mary, his brother, Joseph, and his nickname, the less, we know nothing else. That's the entirety of scriptural knowledge about this man. There's no biblical record of a single, uh, relating any single matter of what he did. Uh, nothing made, any statements he made, no action he carried out, Nothing, just his name mentioned in each of these Gospels. He's mentioned, we're told about his family, told about his nickname, but that's it. You know, he is remembered in the Word of God simply because of his dedication to the Lord. He was chosen to be one of the twelve because of his character. And at the end of the day, that's all that really matters is that you and I be remembered for our dedication to the Lord. It doesn't matter our standing in society. It doesn't matter uh, who we are. It doesn't matter how rich or poor. It doesn't matter uh, how strong we are or weak. It doesn't matter uh, who we are. At the end of the day, all that really matters is that you and I be remembered for our dedication to the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 58, a verse that we know well. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, 
Always abandon the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not, uh, so that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, this is what God requires of us, that when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to our dedication to the Lord, that you and I be found steadfast, unmoving, always abandon the work of the Lord, that you and I are simply like James, the son of Alphaeus, that you and I are committed to serving the Lord. And it doesn't matter whether all that's remembered is our name. What's ordinary remembered is our dedication to him. The second one we want to look at this morning is Judas Thaddeus. Go to Mark 3 again, please. Mark 3. Mark 3. And verse 18. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And Simon the Kenyon. And Thaddeus. Now, the most remarkable thing about Thaddeus is he has three names. Okay? He has three names. In fact, it's the most striking thing that we find about this man of all the disciples in the disciples here. Three names. In Mark 3.18, he's called Thaddeus. In Matthew 10 and verse 3, he's called Libius, whose surname was Thaddeus. And in Luke 6.16... We do not find the name Thaddeus or Lebius. We find the name Judas. So his name is Judas Lebius Thaddeus. I don't know whether that means he was some highfalutin character. We don't know. But he has three names. And uh, none of these names, by the way, seem to be nicknames. These seem to be his names. Okay? And... Uh, so we have one disciple with three names. So what do these names tell us about Judas? Because it seems to me that if the Lord records his three names, they must have been there for some reason. Let's go to Luke 6.16, please. Luke 6.16. We read here, And Judas, the brother of James. Judas, the brother of James. And you'll notice here that the brother of is in italics. That's because it's not in the original. In fact, the original reads Judas of James. The word of is used in the archaic sense to note coming out of or descending from. So Judas descends from James. And it's probably better to render the italics there to read rather the son of rather than the brother of. As in verse 15 in this same chapter, verse 15 we read, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus. It's the same structure. James of Alphaeus. It's the same uh, Greek word, the same of, this archaic word meaning descending from. James descends uh, from uh, Alphaeus. And Judas descends from James. And it's indicating here that James is the father of Judas rather than his brother now, the Bible doesn't reveal to us which James was the brother or father of Judas. Okay, it doesn't really matter if he's brother or father because we have no idea who he was. But it's unlikely that he was one of the Jameses mentioned in the Bible. This is probably some other James, this common name, okay? The name Labius, Labius in Mark, and Matthew 10.3 means man of heart. And Thaddeus 
in Matthew 10.3 means large-hearted or courageous. So Judas, who is the son of James, was probably known for his courage and his passion. Or at least that's what his parents hoped for him when they named him, that he would be a man of heart, that he would be a man of courage, that he would be a man of a large heart. And Judas was probably known for those characteristics. We can gather that he was a man who loved the Lord and was devoted to him. And once again, you know, the Lord is not looking for outward greatness, for inward, but inward devotion to him. And here we have a kind of a glimpse into the heart of this man Judas because of his other two names. He's a man with a big heart. He's a man with a dedicated devotion, a man of courage. And the Lord is looking to see our hearts. He doesn't care what we look like on the outside. It doesn't matter what we look like in the mirror. It doesn't matter uh, how strong or how young or how, uh, uh, how uh, uh, beautiful or handsome we might look. That doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is what's in our hearts. What kind of heart we have before the Lord. That's what the Lord looked for in Judas and that's what the Lord found and that's what the Lord is looking for in you and I. And that's what he ought to be able to find. There's one other remarkable thing about this man, Judas Thaddeus. And that is, he re recording the word of God, he asks one question. One question. Go with me to John chapter 14, please. John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 22. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Of the three most obscure disciples in the word of God, James of Alpheus, Simon Lodzlotis, and Judas of James, only Judas has any personal comments reported. And here he is distinguished from the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, by the words, not Iscariot. So I'm sure he's glad that that's what was put in there, that we know that he's not Iscariot. This is a different Judas. This is Judas of James, Judas Thaddeus. And in John chapter 14, Jesus has given his final instructions to the disciples the night of his crucifixion. We already saw John chapter 14 in relation to Thomas this morning. And in John chapter 14, the Lord is trying to encourage the disciples and trying to give them some final instructions prior to him going out and being betrayed and being led away and judged and crucified. And here he tells the disciples in verses 15 to 29 that after he leaves, he will send the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15, if you would, please. If you love me, keep my commandments. Sorry, uh, yes, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I'll pray the Father that he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, believe, uh, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am, I am in the Father, and Ye and me, and I in you. 
He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will, be manifest, and will manifest myself to him. And so the Lord here is giving them instructions with what's going to happen once he's gone. And then when he leaves, what's going to happen is he's going to give unto them the Holy Spirit. He's going to give to them another comforter, one to come alongside and help them as they minister for him. This trauma that's about to be set then where Christ is about to die and, and be buried and rise again and then ascend up to glory is the beginning of something special, not the end of, of their time, but the beginning of a ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he wants them to understand that. He wants them to understand that the Comforter is coming. And he states that those who love him will keep his commandments. That's verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And Jesus, will, and Jesus then says that he will love them and show himself to them. Verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So I want you to keep my commandments. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to come alongside you and help you to keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, I will love you, and my Father will love you, and what's more, I will manifest myself to you, he says. And I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Those that love the, love the Word of God and keep his commandments will indeed see the Savior. Now Judas interrupts with a question in verse 22. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that will manifest thyself unto us, not unto the world? He asked the question, why will Christ show himself to them, but not to the world? Now it's interesting, isn't it? When I read John chapter 14, that's not the question I think of. I don't know about you. You know, let not your heart be troubled. I believe, believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you, and so on. You know, I think about what's the mansion going to be like. About you, that's what I think when I start reading John chapter 14. When I get down to John chapter 14 and verse 15 and following, what I don't think about is why are you going to manifest yourself to me? Lord, I'm so thankful you've sent a comforter. It's not, it doesn't go through my head. The, the question that Judas asks is not the question that immediately comes to my mind in the midst of this great teaching the Lord's giving about uh, him going away and, and so on. Okay? And, uh, you know, the fact that Jesus Christ is the Father. Back in verse 8 and 9, Philip asks the question. Philip saith unto the Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices. Jesus saith unto him, I have, been, uh, have I been so long with you, and yet has not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Now how so as they show us the Father? I think that's a good question. But Judas asks, okay, he asks this question, he says in verse 22, how is it that will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Why is it that Christ, the King of the Jews, was going to make himself known only to the disciples? Now, you kind of got to put your Jewish hat on here for a moment to understand what he's asking. Okay? You see, in the Jewish mind, their Messiah was coming to establish his kingdom to overthrow the Roman Empire. Their Messiah was coming to be their king. 
And no matter how much teaching they receive from the Lord, it seems like they cannot get over this. Remember, even after his resurrection, prior to his ascension, the disciples say to him, Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom unto Israel? Okay, this is the Jewish mentality. Why, Lord, are you going to manifest yourself to us, but won't you manifest yourself to the world? Why won't you let everybody know you're the king? That's his question. Okay, that's what he wants to know. It seems as though, like other disciples, Judas is still hoping that Christ would set him up as the political leader of Israel at this time. And when you've grown up as a Jew, you've been taught the Messiah is coming, you've been taught the Messiah will set up his kingdom, is it any wonder that even in the midst of all this great teaching, the thing that the disciples are thinking about is still the kingdom? And that's exactly what Judas asks. Now Christ answers Judas by restating basically what he'd already said. That he and the Father would live with that person who followed and guarded Christ's words. Because look what Christ says in verse 23. Jesus answered said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and will come unto him, and make our abode with him. If a man love me, he will keep my words. And if we keep his words, my father will love him, and will come unto him, and make our abode with him. You see, Judas was looking for a kingdom. But Christ was talking about the challenge to believers to walk in the power of the Spirit. And if we love the Lord, we will keep his commandments. And if we keep his commandments, then the Father will manifest himself unto us. If we love and obey the Father, he's pleased to abide with us. He's pleased to guide us. He's pleased to comfort us. Isn't that what he just said in verses 15 to 21? If you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that, that he may abide with you forever. Okay, I'm not going to leave you comfortless, verse 18. I will come to you. But if you, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll study my word, you'll keep my commandments, and then I'm happy to abide with you, and I'll guide you, and I'll lead you. If we love the Lord, it will be shown by a genuine love for his word. And we demonstrate genuine love for his word by keeping his commandments. It's not a love that just admires his word, but it's a love that obeys his word, keeps his word. Look at verse 24. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which, my, uh, which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, then you don't really love me. And if you love me and you keep my commandments, I'm happy to abide with you. The Father will abide with you, will guide you and lead you, will comfort you. You see, remember at the end of the day that all that really matters is that we are remembered for our dedication to the Lord. That's what matters here. That you and I love him. 
that you and I are dedicated to him because we love him, that you and I indeed love the Lord so much that we want to know his word, we want to know him in his word, and as we get to know him and get to know his word, our knowledge of him cause our love for him to grow, and as we love him, we'll desire to keep his commandments, and as we keep his commandments, he will abide with us, he will guide us and lead us, and you and I will bring glory to his name. That we love him and we are dedicated to him is what God is looking for in us. And in Judas here, Judas asks the, 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 the question that sparks an answer, not the answer that he was looking for. He was looking for an answer of when the kingdom will be established. Christ said, don't worry about the kingdom. What matters is that you love me and you keep my commandments. And if you do, when that Holy Spirit comes alongside you to comfort you, he will guide you, he will lead you, and he'll help you in your dedication and service to me. It doesn't matter about when I'll establish the kingdom. What matters is you love me and keep my commandments. And that's exactly what God requires of us, that we love him and we keep his commandments. And as we do that, he will guide us and lead us and bring, help us to bring glory to his name. And that's all we know about these two men. But although the facts are few, there are lessons we can learn from James, or from uh, James and Thaddeus. Two lessons I want us to look at as we close this morning. First of all, all men are important to God. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to commence reading from verse 26. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and that God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and the things which are, which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are that no flesh should glory in, the, in his presence. Here we find that all men are important to God. You know, to him there is no great people and there is no insignificant people. Now, that's not the case with us. You know, we often think that certain people are better than other people. You know, uh, mankind, as mankind in general, we have a tendency to look at people and we categorize them, we we look upon them being as significant and insignificant. We look upon them in, as being rich and poor. We look upon them as being uh, educated and uneducated. We look at them with great speaking ability and non-speaking ability. We look at them as being, you know, uh, uh, politicians, as being important politicians, as being uh, not so important politicians. And we look at their position. We see some people standing taller than others and some people not so tall. That's how we see mankind. But you know, God sees things differently. To him, the short, as with James the less, and the tall, as James Zebedee, are all alike. The famous Peter and John 
as well as the obscure Judas Thaddeus, are alike. The rich publican Matthew and the poor fisherman Peter are no different in God's sight. We often judge people because of what they wear or how talented they may be. But you know, God is not interested in any of that. There's only one thing that God's interested in, and that is that you and I love him, and because we love him, we're devoted to him. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter our social standing. It doesn't matter how rich or poor. It doesn't matter how young or old. It doesn't matter how educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter. To God, nothing matters except the fact that you and I love him, and we love his word, and we keep his commandments. That's all that matters to God. Nothing else really matters. God does save some noble, but not many. Verse 26 that says that. For you, are, uh, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise after the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are called. God does call some mighty and some noble and after the flesh, but not many. For the most part, it's the common, ordinary people that God uses, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised as God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. God chose the foolish things of this world. God likes to choose the insignificant. God chooses the ones that aren't going to get in the way of his glory. God's not looking for talented people. He's the God of all men. No one is unimportant to him. The Lord is simply looking for men and women, boys and girls, people who, are dedicate, who will dedicate themselves to serve in the Lord, who will say with Isaiah, Hear my Lord, send me. Who will say with the Apostle Paul, What will they have me to do? Who will simply say to the Lord, Lord, take me, use me for your glory. I love you and I want to do your will. That's what God desires of us. It doesn't matter who we are. God will take every one of us and use us for his glory if we'll only dedicate ourselves to him. The only requirement for serving the Lord is that you and I are willing and we're devoted in our hearts to him. And so God chooses all men because all are important to him. But God chooses the obscure also so that he might be glorified. Look at verse 29 in this chapter. The reason why God doesn't choose the noble and the wise, but chooses the foolish things of this world, is this reason, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Why does God choose Simon the Zealot? Why does God choose James, the son of Alphaeus? Why does God choose Judas Thaddeus? Why does God choose the, 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 the unknowns, the the ones that are seemingly insignificant, why does God choose them? 
Why did God choose a tax collector like Matthew? Why did he choose fishermen like Peter, James and John and Andrew? Why did God choose these ones? Well, God chose the obscure and plays down the New Testament disciples because of verse 29. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, the New Testament was not written to glorify men, but written to glorify God. If we had been left great records of the disciples, we might well have worshipped to the disciples. In fact, you know, the truth is that mankind has a tendency to worship everything but God, left themselves. People worship Mary today rather than Christ. People will worship the uh, you know, ancestors rather than worshipping God. If you and I had wealth of information about the intricate details of all the lives of all these apostles, and you and I knew all about them inside and out, we'd have a tendency to want to worship the disciples rather than worshiping Christ. But the New Testament was not written so that you and I might understand how great the disciples were, but so you and I might see the glory of God. The Lord is the only being in the universe worthy of worship and worthy of praise. So God chooses these foolish, these, these insignificant disciples. He chooses them so that he might get the glory. I mean, think about it. You think of the 12. Well, we've only looked at a few of them because we want to look at the most obscure. But you think of the 12. How many of those 12 really stand out as being characters that you really think, wow, they're wonderful? I mean, think of James and John, because I'm sure somebody's thinking of John right now being an upstanding disciple. Think about him these two men, these are the two characters who wanted to sit one right hand and one on the left hand of Christ in his kingdom. They were full of pride. These are the two men who wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy a village because they wouldn't let them eat something in their village. They weren't called the sons of thunder for nothing. Okay? We tend to have a tendency to, to overlook some of these things. I mean, we're talking about poor old Thomas getting a, a, a really poor rap, you know, and calling, you know, doubting Thomas... I'm not sure why we give such a free hand to James and John, a free hand to Peter, a free hand to the others. I mean, you read about all of them. They're a ragtag bunch of nobodies. I mean, honestly, if you and I were choosing 12 apostles, would you have chosen Judas Iscariot? But you see, Christ chose these men so that he might get the glory because that's what it's all about. It's about him. When Leonardo da Vinci painted the Lord's Supper, we're told that the first people to see the painting remarked about the beauty of the bowl of fruit on the table. To everyone's amazement, da Vinci took a brush and immediately painted the bowl of fruit from the picture. And when questioned about it, da Vinci replied, I didn't paint the picture for the people to see the fruit, but to see the face of the Lord. See, the New Testament, folks, was written that we might know the Lord. Not James, the less. Not Judas, Thaddeus, or any man or any woman, but that we might know him. And though it's good to study 
the disciples, as we've been doing over the last few weeks, we should not forget that they were not the important ones. He is. May we not study the Bible just to learn facts about men, but to know Christ. Somebody said, you know, the smaller we are, the greater God can use us. And as we look at these disciples, you and I ought to realize how little they were in the presence of Christ and realize that you and I equally are small in the presence of Christ. But likewise, you and I can be used of him if we'll dedicate ourselves to him. Because the more important we think that we are, the less the Lord will use us. Remember John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. See, God keeps the records, folks. He knows who is faithful, who is not. He knows who loves him and who does not. And the question for you and I is this. How deep does our love go? How dedicated are we to the Lord? How desirous are we of obeying his commandments? How real is our devotion to him? We may not be the most popular people in the world. It doesn't matter whether we're popular. What matters is, does God see our devotion to him? Let's dedicate ourselves to the Lord so that he might get the glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, James the Less, and Judas Thaddeus, these two men, Father God, who on the pages of Scripture are seemingly insignificant. We thank you, Father God, that teaches about the importance of dedication to you. Help us, Father, to love you and to dedicate ourselves to serving you and by your power obeying your commandments so that you might get the glory. Commend your word to our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. 334.